And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Ezra chapter 4, and commencing to read at verse 1. Again, please give your careful attention as we read God's Word. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Amen. And so far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Opposition and discouragement are important recurring themes throughout all of redemptive history for the people of God. We have a particular example of it here in Ezra chapter 4. The chapter itself begins with the discouragement that came after the offer of assistance from the Samaritans was declined. And so from this point onward, right through until the end of the book of Ezra and into the book of Nehemiah, opposition will be a constant theme. What does that tell us? It tells us that the kingdom of God is built within enemy-occupied territory. And so, very often, it is the experience of the people of God to suffer opposition from the unbelieving world all around us. Well, as we turn to this text again this evening, as I indicated we would do so, Lord willing, two Sunday evenings ago, Ezra 4, 1 through 5 shows that opposition was the reason why the work on building the temple ground to a halt. We are going to think about three things this evening. First of all, 
a rightly declined offer revisited. That was the focus of the first exposition of this passage two weeks ago. We will simply survey that to get us back into the context. And then secondly, we will move on to crippling disappointment. And then thirdly, handling discouragement. So first of all then, rightly declined, a rightly declined offer revisited, verses 1 through 4. As the work began on rebuilding the temple, a delegation had arrived in the city who were adversaries, enemies of Judah and Benjamin. They're described as people of the land. They're those who had been forcibly resettled in the region during the reign of the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon. Now, as we noted two weeks ago, in the civil sphere, it is possible for Christians to cooperate with unbelievers to the benefit and to the good of civil society. But that's not what the issue is here. They're not working on issues common to believer and unbeliever alike. This is to do with the kingdom of God. This is to do with the church of God. And because of that, this is an entirely different circumstance. Now, the outright rejection of the offer of help here um, seems to many down through the ages and perhaps to many today to be somewhat, if not totally, unreasonable. And yet, the leaders, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and the heads of the houses in Israel, judged this matter aright. They saw these people for what they were. They were idolatrous Gentiles. They were not true worshipers of the one true living God, despite what they might say with their lips. And hence, as we might say in our modern language, they were religiously compromised, and therefore they were not fit, and it was not right that they should work alongside the returned exiles in the building, the rebuilding of God's temple. And so, as again, to put it in the language of our own day, this ecumenical offer of help, of cooperation, was rightly and flatly refused. What was happening here? Well, danger lurked, didn't it? Danger lurked here in the guise of a genuine offer of help. These were, as the New Testament writers, as well as the Old Testament writers, would call wolves in sheep's clothing. They were not what they seemed. They came with smiles and with offers of assistance, and yet they were plotting mischief and disorder, and therefore they were to be forthrightly resisted. Of course, behind them as the human agents, of course, was the archenemy Satan himself, who always opposes the purposes of God. And so he was at this time through these agents. 
to use the language of the Apostle Paul, a little bit anachronistically to apply it back, as it were, before Paul had even ever used this phrase. But in his own day, Paul would such, call such people enemies of the cross of Christ, despite what they appear to be. Remember, that's how he called such um, who were false teachers in Philippi. That's the immediate context of that phrase of the apostle, enemies of the cross of Christ. And so, for all such, whatever may be the particular context and time and place, they were to be resisted with unrelenting zeal. And so, the people under the leadership of Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua did at this time. Well, then that leads us in the second place, though, to crippling disappointment, verses 4 and 5. Crippling disappointment. Having had their offer of help refused, the people of the land then turned to a strategy of systematic discouragement. Systematic discouragement. This was an organized strategy that was employed in Jerusalem against the people of God with devastating success. And so, having begun the work of rebuilding the temple, um, faced with this opposition, faced with such organized strategic uh, effort here on behalf of these uh, opponents, the Jews stopped working altogether. It wasn't just they were slowed down, that they were delayed, that uh, the um, time uh, line for the project kind of slipped a little bit, as we might describe uh, project management in our day. The work stopped altogether until uh, Ezra himself appears on the scene and is used by the Lord to stir up the people again to begin the work. That would be some 20 years before the task of building the temple was completed. So, there is significant uh, delay here and indicative of this crippling discouragement under this opposition from the people of the land. There are two things that are very significant here to note in the text. First of all, the Jews here were so discouraged that they were afraid to go on building, Ezra 4 verse 4. Through a campaign of physical and psychological intimidation and threats, the reconstruction work came to a standstill. Now, we need to take a moment to see that uh, these returned exiles, these Jews, were not um, trained for psychological warfare. They were not uh, experts prepared particularly to engage in such combat. Often if uh, a nation knows it may be facing such an enemy, then it selects uh, certain people with certain dispositions and characteristics, uh, highly trains them to be able to combat uh, such a strategy being deployed against them. Uh, the Jews were not in that kind of camp and category. If you think about where they had been prior to returning, they'd spend their lives in Babylon, 
used to being subject and submissive to uh, Babylonian and uh, then uh, to um, Syrian, Assyrian uh, uh, masters. Uh, and so, from that human perspective, uh, they were not um, uh, expertly prepared to deal with this kind of hostility. And so, the campaign of intimidation um, was uh, effective, cripplingly effective, uh, to the ceasing of the work. Now, the precise details of how this strategy was deployed, the text does not uh, uh, tell us. Um, but we might infer from what we'd already seen prior to uh, uh, this uh, situation uh, there were already those who were discouraged because the scope, you remember, of the temple was not as big as Solomon's. There were always, already there were those uh, weeping because uh, this wasn't going to be so impressive. And so um, it does not take a great uh, leap to say it maybe didn't take much more opposition for those who were already thinking in that way. And then take those, it doesn't take much for that to spread, does it? Discouragement spreads rapidly amongst a community of people. However the details worked, um, the work on the temple ground to a halt. But the second thing to note here was that the strategy was not just the immediate discouragement of the people in Jerusalem working on the project itself. There was a second, if we might say, prong to the strategy and that was what we might call a diplomatic offensive. In other words, that there were those then who were working behind the scenes uh, back in Persia, uh, and uh, as we might say, lobbying in the halls of power with uh, the Persians. And uh, we see uh, that here in uh, verses 4 and 5. A campaign was initiated to dislodge the favorable status that the Jews had with the Persian kings. Um, again, we don't know all the details, but uh, apparently uh, these people of the land, Samaritans and others, were able to hire professional counselors um, to uh, uh, bring this campaign right to the Persian capital, right to the king. And we'll read more of that as we get into the book of Ezra. And not only to get access to the corridors of power, but to maintain that um, uh, access and effectiveness and lobbying and uh, insinuating against the Jews, um, not only in the reign of Cyrus, but all the way down to uh, the um, reign of Darius, um, which began in 522 BC, about 14 years in the future from when this first uh, began that we're reading of here. Um, why would the Persians listen to any of this? I mean, um, well, of course, uh, these um, uh, whisperers, as we might call it, whispering campaigns, uh, were very creative very effective, 
they suggested that building such a temple would only increase the desire amongst the Jews for greater independence. You know, if you let them build their temple, and then if you allow them to rebuild the walls of their city as it came into the day in the times of Nehemiah, then it won't be long before they're wanting to throw off altogether any uh, rule of you Persians. And so um, they come insinuating, you know, we're, we're thinking of your best interests, O king, whether it be Cyrus or whether it be Darius or any of the other kings. We're thinking of your best interests here. And uh, you better stop them before uh, they become uh, too independently minded and too strong and organized and will no longer submit to your rule. Well, the effectiveness of this, both uh, parts of the strategy, uh, led to this significant discouragement of the people. Uh, we might put it this way, it drained away their spirit, didn't it? it just um, uh, totally incapacitated them uh, to continue. Uh, diminished the effort of building. In personal terms, we might say it led to apathy and to inertia. They were not doing anything anymore. Um, and so, uh, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, which, uh, Lord willing, we will do uh, in a week or so's time, Ezra 4, verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, we want to pause just for a moment or two this evening to uh, dwell on this situation, uh, what one commentator calls this lamentable situation. The work of God here was halted. It stopped. Um, what does that teach us? It teaches us that discouragement is a deadly virus. What do we see its effects here among the people of the Lord? It sapped their energy. It crippled their motivation. It turned them inward upon themselves. And they became so discouraged that they stopped work altogether. Well, what we see here is not unique amongst the people of God who are called to labor in the kingdom of the Lord. Let me ask you this evening, are you discouraged? Maybe not to the point so crippled of nothing, doing nothing, downing tools altogether and just being absolutely uh, incapacitated. Um, but has discouragement begun to have some debilitating effect? for you, for us as a congregation here this evening? Does it seem to us, for at least from time to time, that every step forward we make, whether it's in our individual Christian lives or whether it's together as a congregation in seeking to bring glory to God, in seeking to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, in seeking to uh, make Him known to the ends of the earth. For every step forward in those kinds of things, 
Um, at least from time to time, do we feel that we take two steps backwards. That's the issue that we have to deal with. We had to deal with it in the time here in Ezra and in Nehemiah, and so do we uh, even today as the professing church of the Lord Jesus. Well, then, what do we do about that? If we are honest enough to at least recognize it, admit it is true, at least from time to time, that it may well be true for me right now, what do we do about it? How do we deal with it? Well, that brings us to our third main point this evening, dealing with discouragement. Now, this is a big topic, and we're going to come back to it again and again in these books, and this is one of the uh, great blessings of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is the way in which um, there is an effective remedy for discouragement, whether we think of it discouragement in the individual Christian life or we think of it corporately together uh, in the church. For this evening, we are simply going to survey what we might call a three-part strategy for dealing with discouragement in the Christian life, whether we think of it individually or corporately. It's a strategy that we'll see again and again in Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll see these individuals deploy this very strategy as we progress through these books. So we're not going to try and say everything there is to say about it uh, in, in one sermon this evening, but we're going to try and sketch it out and uh, come up above the trees, as we often say, helicopter view of how do we deal with discouragement. Number one, first we must recognize that the Christian life consists in trials and difficulties of all sorts, and that no gains are to be made without enduring and persevering in the midst of such hostilities. We must recognize the Christian life consists of these things. That's why the apostles often appealed to their hearers and said, don't be surprised by this, Peter says. Why are you taken by surprise by this? You ought not to be. The Christian life will involve such things. And to recognize that often one of their purposes, there may be others in God's sovereign providence, but one of their purposes is to mature the saints, to strengthen faith, and that no real gains are made in those areas without enduring and persevering in the midst of such hostility. Well, you may say, that's kind of not what I was hoping to hear that Christianity is all about. Um, I wanted to hear about all of the blessings. I want to hear about all the promises of God to those who believe um, I was not so keen to hear about opposition and hostility. But it is God's sovereign purpose that His people face such things. We've said it before, we'll say it again before we come to the ends of these books, that if God had been so pleased to transport us all, even translators, Enoch-like, from this world instantly upon our profession of faith, then He could well have done so. 
but in his sovereign wisdom, he did not. And though this may not sound the best news to us, even some might say, that sounds pretty depressing then. I've got to face difficulties and trials and hostilities. Um, we have to acknowledge first part of our strategy for dealing with it is it is a constitutive part of the Christian life. The Bible says so over and over. It's a constant theme of the Scriptures. We are to know and not be surprised that we have an enemy, Satan himself, who will stop at nothing in his attempt, it is only an attempt, but in his attempt to defy God, to thwart God in his purpose, and therefore to thwart the purpose of his Son, Jesus Christ, therefore to seek to thwart the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as they seek to be faithful to their great commission in the advancement of the kingdom of God. The Scriptures teach us that, brethren. The first part, the first part of the strategy in dealing with discouragement and opposition is to see that it is something that the Scriptures say will be our experience. One commentator puts it like this. He says, Knowing this about the Christian life means that we will not be caught off guard when the storm breaks. Every good deed in the kingdom will be resisted in one way or another. And the sooner we know that and prepare for it, the better. End quote. It's very practical, isn't it? Understand this is reality. The sooner you know that, the sooner you will be prepared to face it. That is for the better. And so the kingdom of God calls on us, brethren, to um, stand fast, to um, exert efforts as God enables us, to put on the gospel armor, as Paul tells us, and to stand firm. Ephesians 6, to be ready when that evil day comes. Change the analogy a little bit. Uh, we're going to be thinking about Hebrews chapter 12 in a little while. There the, the picture is uh, being trained and ready for battle. Um, hardships, opposition, um, strengthen us in ways that Ease and luxury do not. Uh, you know what it's like when an athlete is in training for his or her special event. Um, they undergo hardship, don't they? They train hard. They put their muscles under um, uh, stress and tension so that they might be strengthened. Um, now, after the big event is over and they take some time off, and uh, perhaps then they're not in the gym every day and uh, doing all the things they have to do, then uh, some of that uh, peak fitness um, is lost, isn't it? And uh, if they do it for too long, then it takes quite some significant effort investment to, to return to that. That's, that's the idea here, even as the writer uh, points out to us in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, it's our calling to be uh, aware of the battle in which we are involved, and to be constantly ready. Um, 
So the place for the Christian is the gymnasium. It's not the beach. Working hard, preparing hard. Uh, by God's help and grace, certainly, we must, as one commentator puts it, be ready to accept conflict as our calling, seeing ourselves as the Lord's soldier pilgrims. Of course, he's drawing there on Bunyan's uh, allegory, isn't he, in Pilgrim's Progress, and goes on to say, and not expecting to be able to advance without opposition of one sort or another. End quote. It was the pattern for the Lord Jesus, wasn't it? It was pattern for the Master. Suffering first, leading to glory. And so it is for His servants. So, first thing in dealing with uh, discouragement is that this is the Christian life. Don't think it's the exception. It is the Christian life. And that no gains are to be made without enduring and persevering in such hostility. Second part of the strategy is to learn from the mistake that the people of God made here in this part of the book of Ezra. To learn from the mistakes, either of our own mistakes, but here we're going to learn from the mistake uh, of others. What was their mistake? They allowed themselves to fall victim to discouragement. Why did that happen? Well, they lost sight of the goal that they were called in the building of God's temple so that they might worship Him according to His commandment. More importantly, they lost not only sight of the goal, the means by which they were to rightly worship God, they lost sight of God Himself in the midst of all of this, didn't they? What's interesting here in verse 4 is despite the seeming ineffectiveness of the leaders, Zerubbabel and Jeshua at this time, to kind of shake the people out of this, to motivate them to persevere, the text itself avoids, avoids any particular criticism of them. What it actually says is it's the people of Judah and Benjamin. It was the community themselves as a whole who became discouraged, verse 4. And it was that which ultimately led to the project grinding to a halt, as we read in verse 24. What's the lesson here to be avoided? Well, the lesson here is whenever you take your eye off the Lord, Christian, discouragement is sure to prevail. There's nowhere else to look and be encouraged. There's nowhere else and no one else to look to to grant us the grace to persevere in the midst of opposition and difficulty. Think about it for yourself. When you've passed through a hard time, now that's not to say the Lord doesn't use secondary means of others, brethren, to come alongside us. But ultimately, and let me speak of myself so I don't kind of um, put anybody else in the frame here, I'll speak of myself. If you look to me to deliver you from discouragement, I'm sorry. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. Because in the end, I can't deliver on that for you. The only way I can deliver on that, and the only way you can deliver on that, is pointing those who are beginning to feel their discouragement to the source of the greatest encouragement, which is God Himself. 
You see, if you look to yourself, and I think then we're all going to testify rightly, right? That's discouraging, right? At our very best, we don't add up to much. And then, without being too disrespectful to each other, if we know that about ourselves, each of us, then looking to each other isn't going to come up with much else, is it? Even trying to be as courteous as we can be to, to each other. That's the lesson we've got to learn here. We've got to keep our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord. And the minute our eyes are taken from Him and we start looking around, whether it's to ourselves or to others, uh, simply as human beings, we will fail. That's what they did here. Because you see, the answer to the Jews' predicament of the hostility locally, all the verbal discouragement in Jerusalem, and all the lobbying that was going on in Persia, what was the answer to that? The answer was not in themselves, either individually or looking to each other. They didn't have the, the means and the wherewithal to resist all of that, did they? They didn't have the means to counter each and every whispering campaign in, in Jerusalem. And they certainly didn't have the means to counter all the lobbying that was going on in the corridors of power in Persia. Whispering in the king's ear, you know, you better stop there. They had little to no uh, means of turning that around themselves. What could they do and what should they have done? They needed to turn again to the Lord. They needed to believe in the God who had brought them back from Babylon by the edict of such a pagan king as Cyrus, who we would not have assumed would have been on their side and would not have uh, willingly and gladly um, uh, recognized to some degree the God of heaven and earth and uh, the Jews as His people and in His providence and timing to go and rebuild the temple. And yet God had done that, hadn't He? That is the one that they needed to turn to. The one who had resettled them in the land. The opposition from these people had not uh, resisted them to the point of not even letting them back. God had settled them in the land. And therefore, the one who was able to continue to work out His purposes even through what they were doing in their day and generation, and which ultimately, of course, was to lead to God fulfilling His purpose in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, His Anointed One, His Messiah, to save His people from all their enemies, not just local Gentiles, and not just Persian overlords, but from all of their enemies, sin, the devil, and death. That's the one to whom they needed to look. And so that's the second part of the strategy here, to, to learn from the mistake of the people who turned their eyes away from God at this point and looked to themselves at best and found nothing but great disappointment. What, is, what does Paul say in New Testament language concerning this God to whom they needed to keep their eyes firmly on? 
Paul describes him as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. How much is that? Children, how much is abundantly more than you can ever ask or think? It's a lot, isn't it? And by very definition, it is more than you can even comprehend. It's more than you can ask for, and it's more than you can even think about asking for. That's what Paul's saying in those kind of ways that Paul piles up language. In a way, if you put it down in your uh, English final, somebody's probably going to say, you can't say that. That's not grammatically correct. But he does it for the point he's trying to make, do you see? God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, how, according to the power at work within us, Paul says, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Who did Paul set his eyes on in the midst of all of his suffering and persecution and the opposition, be it of Jewish leaders, be it of Roman Gentile authorities? It was God wasn't it? The one who is able to do far more abundantly. What's also significant here, and we will just mention this, for we'll come back to it in much greater detail later in the book. Therefore, what's conspicuously absent here, did you notice as we read through this very short section, as these people became discouraged, as they were taking their eyes off the Lord, the big mistake they made, how is that seen in real concrete terms? Um, they probably didn't turn up and say, you know, we're not looking to the Lord anymore. They probably didn't say that. But what is it that they did, or perhaps better, they did not do, that actually told you that was the reality? What's conspicuously absent in this chapter is any indication of prayer to the Lord. Have you noticed that? conspicuous by its absence. No appeal to heaven. No calling to the Lord when all of these opponents um, set out their strategy against them. No prayer to the God of heaven to intervene on their behalf. And as one commentator puts it, he says, quote then, and without prayer, earnest, supplicating prayer, we can expect nothing from the hand of God, end quote. Um, it's a very um, condemning indictment against the people at this time that in the life of the professing people of the Lord, prayer seems not best to have been a great priority for them. They were happy to sit around saying things are not the glory days of old of Solomon. Um, they were clearly listening to the whispering campaigns. They were maybe concerned to what extent they knew about this immediately is not um, necessarily clear of how much they knew of what was going on in the halls of power in Persia immediately until a letter turned up from one of the kings saying, stop, 
But in all of these things, what's conspicuous here is the absence of prayer. And that is um, an indictment against the people. One commentator concludes, the eventual slide into indifference and apathy that results in the next decade and a half is the inevitable outcome. And then he goes on to put it in this very pithy way, but very um, memorable way. He says this, God gave them what they asked for. That was to be left alone. They didn't ask for him to come and help. So God gave them what effectively they asked for by their silence. Um, I trust that you can see what the application of this is for our own day and generation. When we are tempted to discouragement, learn the lesson, the indictment against the people of God in this day and generation. We are to pray. We are to call upon the Lord. We are to do so as individuals. We are to do so in our families. And primarily, we are to do so in the church. That, of course, leads us to practical applications of prayer meeting. Are we in our prayer meeting to call upon the Lord? Or are we happy just to meet other times, other places, to say how tough it all is, how difficult it all is, um, how discouraged we all are. We need to call upon the Lord who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We often talk about praying the words of Scripture back to the Lord, don't we? Thinking God's thoughts after Him. When was the last time we thought of praying Ephesians 3.20 to the Lord? God, You who are able to do far more abundantly than all that I can ask or think. When we corporately together, all that we can ask or think. And calling on the Lord to intervene on our behalf. May God grant us um, perseverance in prayer, to pray such prayers and to learn the lesson from the book of Ezra. Third, and very quickly then, the third part of the strategy we're going to survey is, again, another failure of the exiles at this time. They failed to exercise, therefore, faith in the Lord. Um, they needed to exercise faith. Um, it's very... Um, Significant, perhaps, that in a time when we're thinking in the morning service in the book of Hebrews, by faith, by faith, by faith, and seeing the Old Testament saints who were faithful witnesses, they themselves who had received the divine testimony and thereby by their actions testified to persevering in believing in God and His promises. Well, here in the evening, sadly, are uh, uh, part of the professing people of God of the Old Testament um, who we could not at this time put by faith. There was an absence, a lack of faith here. Why is that important? Well, because faith in the Lord is what will keep us going. 
when all around says stop. Faith in the Lord will keep us, to use our modern language, hanging on, hanging in there, despite the discouragements that we may feel, those that are real and sometimes even those that are imaginary discouragements. Why? Because faith takes hold of the reality of the opposition. It recognizes that's our calling in a hostile world. But it doesn't stop with that. It brings that reality before God in our prayers. And then God enables us to see afresh who He is and what He has already done. And because of that, as Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God is stronger than the might of the fiercest, fiercest enemy. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? It is that kind of faith, of course, that Luther sought to capture in his uh, famous classic hymn that we love to sing around Reformation time, though we should sing it at any other time of the year as well. And you will know that one of the stanzas in that hymn, perhaps not the most well-known stanza, says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's the kind of faith we need when we are tempted to discouragement. That is the faith we need to keep trusting in the Lord when times are difficult and enemies seem to abound. But as we close this evening, we also need to recognize that we cannot do this in our own strength. This is not about me giving you some self-help strategy that's going to inoculate you against discouragement. If we take that approach, we're back to you can't help yourself, you can't have a self-help program, and you can't have some 10-step strategy from me or any other elder of the church to say, just do this and you'll be fine. We cannot do this in our own strength. And so we must look away from ourselves first and foremost. We must look to Christ Himself who has done it all for us. If we are to receive the grace and the strength, then to persevere in faith. Do you see the difficulty? We either get crippled by the discouragement, or we seek to address it, but we address it in the wrong way. And guess what? We're crippled again by the discouragement because we try in our own strength and it buries us. Never had that experience, Christian, where you just think, well, I know what to do with this. I've got this, right? I've got the steps. I can do this. And then you suddenly find this weight is just going to bury you. 
we need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, not take our eyes away from Him. And from Him then we draw the great strength, the great resources from the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He gives us that enabling so that we might not be discouraged, to press on. I often see that from time to time from some brothers in emails. They always finish it off. Press on. It's a great thing, great reminder. But perhaps we should always add to it by God's enabling, by God's grace. It's assumed from the brothers who send it to me. I know what they mean. They don't have to put that there. Um, but we say that to have a complete picture this evening. It's not press on by your own efforts. It's not try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's press on by the grace of God, the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. May God so help us, keep us encouraged, and help us in the times when tempted to discouragement to fix our eyes on Him and so to counteract that enemy, um, that deadly virus, but so that it might be conquered even as all of God's enemies and our enemies will be at last. Amen. Let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, we know the um, reality of discouragement, how so easily it comes and assails us, whether it comes from without or within. But we thank You for the great remedy that You have provided, which is not in our abilities, nor in the abilities of any other mere man, but is in Yourself and in Your Son, Jesus Christ, our great Savior. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would grant us to be realistic, to know that we're in the battle, that this is the Christian life, but yet, O Lord, to know that You will not leave us nor forsake us. You will not leave us ill-equipped or unequipped to deal with that to which You have called us. And so we pray that You would help us, and that You would help us to deploy a biblical strategy against discouragement, even to the great glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.